Welcome to the Crowd Church Podcast. We are an online church and you are listening to the service that we also live stream on YouTube and Facebook. For more information about Crowd Church, please visit our website at www.crowd.church. Good afternoon and welcome to Crowd Church. My name is Matt Edmondson and beside me is the talented and all-round good egg, which is Phil Watson. Phil, how are we doing today? Hello, everybody. Uh, if you happen to be watching in Liverpool, you'll know that they've just scored and have taken a 1-0 lead against a team called Everton. <laughs> Everton are another football team that you might not have heard of if you're not particularly interested in football. Obviously, if you watch this in the future, you might not care. Um, and you might not like football at all, which is perfectly reasonable. Is it? Is that reasonable to not like football? I, I, it is. I, I suppose it is. It's not football's not mentioned in the Bible, is it? But is it? Then they say cricket is because there's a verse in the Bible that says Peter stood before the eleven and was bold. Ah, uh, I never heard that. That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I already, I always knew cricket was God's favourite sport. That's brilliant. <laughs> So there you go. So yeah, welcome to Crowd Church. We're an online church and a spoiler for anybody who's not wanted to know the results of today's football game. Uh, so welcome to church. Uh, I have been traveling. I got back yesterday, so I'm suffering slightly with the old jet lag. So if I fall asleep, please just wake me up, Phil. That'll be fine. Will just, do. Just metaphorically Will prod me. <laughs> have you been to the United States of America? I have been to the United States of America, yes. I was there for two and a half weeks doing a bit of a tour with my daughter, Zoe. We had a great time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit of work, but mostly play, uh, if I'm honest Fantastic. with you. And it was just Fantastic. great to catch up with friends. And so, yeah, I loved every minute of it. Not going to lie. Not going to lie. But it's good to be back. It's good to be back with you guys. Good to be back here at Crowd. So let me tell you what. Well, Phil, do you know what's coming up today? Why don't you tell the good folks? Uh, I believe we'll be doing some praise and some worship and some praying. And we're going to hear a talk about what the Bible says about education. Does yes, the Bible sir. actually mention the word education? Or uh, we're going to find that out? We're going to find that out. I'm, spoil I'm not going to spoil that. Will's going to okay. tell us. So we have Dr. Will Sopworth sharing his thoughts about education. Now, what's interesting about this particular topic, Phil, is that um, you are a secondary school teacher. Um, I am. In England, that basically is high school, right? So you, you, yeah. teach, um, you teach secondary school students. You teach A-levels as well, right? I teach kids from aged 11 up to basically 18. So um, I don't know what, wherever you are, what that context means. So I teach quite a lot of kids who are getting ready for public exams. Mm -hmm. In England, we call them A-levels, GCSEs. Um, but I basically teach, I teach kids in the English state education system. And I've, I've only been doing that for 25 years. And just <laughs> occasionally, occasionally, I'm almost on top of what I should be doing. And I, um, I, for, for point of interest, I teach French and German. Uh, I'm trained as a French and German teacher, mm -hmm. but I've become a, an RE teacher. RE stands for religious education. So in the UK, most people will have some sort of religious education. I know that's not true everywhere. So you would learn about comparative religion. So you'd learn about Christianity, Judaism, mm -hmm. Islam, but you'd also learn about various ethical issues and what Christians or what Jewish people believe about them. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion we invariably reach is uh, Christians disagree on all sorts of topics. And, yes, you know, and I always say to the kids, I said, look, I'm just your teacher today, the kids I teach. But you need to understand that it's quite possible you'll meet several Christians in your life and they will disagree on certain topics. And that actually doesn't stop them from being Christians. It just means that different views on certain mm -hmm. issues are completely reasonable. Where Christians all tend to agree is that you, you, there's a God. That's mm -hmm. the first thing. You know, If you meet a Christian who doesn't believe there's a God, I'm going to guess they've got some real confusion over their theology. They believe that there's something called sin and that we all sin. So there's all things that we do. We all do things that God doesn't want us to do and don't do things that God wants us to do. Mm -hmm. And then we have to understand that we deserve a punishment for those sins that Jesus took the place for us. And the final thing, I'm kind of going through the four points. Yeah, yeah, they I, are. I, I know yeah, that. Yeah, that yeah. Is that you need to decide, you know, what am I going to do with this information? 
other sorts of issues, and I'm sure like education is one of them, there's a Christian view, but there'll be a variety of Christian views, mm-hmm. some of which will reflect the culture in which you find yourself. Absolutely. Uh, You're a Christian working in the secondary school system. And uh, in fact, my my kids all went to a Christian school and Will Sopwith, who is going to be doing today's talk and is joining us for Conversation Street, he is the chair of that school. So he's got one viewpoint, which is great. But two of my kids, Phil, have also uh, done part of their education, uh, their latter part of their education, in the very school that you work. So it's I'm true. really excited by this because, you know, both of you guys have had impacts on my yeah. my kids and their and their education. So um, really interesting conversations coming up. So do stick with us. If you have any questions or thoughts as we go along, do write them in the comments uh, and we will get round to them, uh, hopefully in Conversation Street, which is the second part of this service where we talk about your questions, your thoughts, your ideas on education following on from Will's talk. So without further ado, I'm going to hit this button on my pad and we are going to get straight into it. What does the Bible say about education? Here is Dr. I love to say this, Dr. Will Sopwith, uh, expanding on that. And Phil and I will be back uh, in just a little while. Today we're talking about education and what does the Bible say about education? Well, my learned teacher friend Phil tells me that the word education comes from two Latin roots. Educare, which means to train or to mould, and educare, which means to draw out. And there's this dual meaning of the input of knowledge as part of education, but then also our response or reaction to that knowledge. And education can be general and informal. It can refer to a more formal system of education. And what I'm not really talking about today is people as learners, because people are natural and amazing learners. All you have to do is spend uh, a year with a newborn baby in their first year and just see how much they learn and develop in terms of skills and knowledge in that first year. People are natural learners. So I'm going to talk about more about intentional education and attempts to teach. So what I'm going to share a few thoughts about uh, what the Bible's influence on education has been and is, some different types of education in the Bible, and then finally, the example of Jesus, who's an example that Christians take uh, particular note of. So to start us off, a quote from Nelson Mandela, the freedom fighter, social campaigner and eventual president of South Africa. And he said, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And I think this sentiment is a clue to why the Bible has influenced the establishment and spread of education quite so much. Because the Bible is full of this imperative to change the world for the better. For us to be changed so that we can go on and change our wider world. So one example of this is in Deuteronomy 10, uh, uh, verse 18. And in that there's a command to God's people to defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And throughout history, children and women, and especially those without the family to provide, them, provide for them, have been amongst the most vulnerable and exploited people. 
And even now in the 21st century, there is still in some parts of the world a fight for the right of women and children to receive literacy, numeracy, the skills they need to avoid uh, that exploitation. And historically, the Christian missions movement, compelled from the Bible to make disciples in all nations, has always gone hand in hand with introducing schooling and training to communities where there is none or amongst the most needy. Why? Well, knowledge is power. As we've heard from that quote in Nelson Mandela, power to change your circumstance and power to change the world. And these are actually themes from the Bible, throughout the Bible, from the escape of Jews from the slavery um, led by Moses, right through to the teaching of Jesus, a formation of the early church. There is this theme of power to change the world. In parts of India, the word for school literally means the building beside the church. School and missionaries are just inseparable. They've always been part, um, schooling has always been part, setting up schools has always been part of Christian mission. The first Sunday schools began in 1780 in Gloucester, set up by a guy called Robert Rakes. And he was appalled by the destitution and criminality of the majority of young people in the town where he lived. And these young people would be working 12-hour shifts, Monday to Saturday, in fields and factories, and completely without any, any formal education, and very little time for it. So for an hour each week before church, there was Sunday school. And this was uh, introduced to teach reading and writing to whoever wanted it. And it was quickly oversubscribed and many more Sunday schools were set up. And the movement spread across the UK and into America. And for many, this was the only source of education until schools became more organised um, and laws were changed um, to allow and, and then enforce um, the education of children. Louis Braille uh, was a boy blinded at the age of five in France who went on to develop the system that is now used worldwide by those unable to see, that system of raised dots that we call Braille. He was a committed Christian. A French priest, a guy called Charles-Michel de Lepay, uh, was the one who first opened a public school for deaf children in Paris. And in translating the whole French alphabet into sign language, this actually became the basis of international signing that's uh, that we use today. So it's, these are a few examples of the faith of followers of Christ guided by the Bible that inspired these initiatives in education. And people reading the Bible have been prompted by words like those of Jesus in Matthew 19, 14. Let the little children come to me. They're not the bottom of the heap. They are important and they should have the opportunity uh, to know God, to be trained and educated. So as well as the inspiration to transform society, the Bible actually as a book has had quite a significant impact on education. And, and what the Bible is really is a whole library in miniature. It has books of history, poetry, philosophy, leadership, eyewitness documentary, lots of different literary styles. And Christians have worked through history to mass print it, to translate it, and generally make it as available as possible. Why? Well, because we believe it holds the keys to life. And the result is that the Bible might have been often the only book owned by a family or community. And because of its status as a kind of mini library of different uh, literary forms, it becomes an excellent resource for literacy. And for many cultures around the world, where language is traditionally spoken only, there is no written down form of language. It's been portions of the Bible that have often been the first written material and the basis then for developing uh, a, a full written um, account of, of that spoken language. And that's because of the efforts of Christians, again, inspired um, by what the Bible teaches. So the message of the Bible is also a direct encouragement towards education, or at least developing and using our talents. 
So a few examples, Psalm 119 verse 33 says, teach me your ways, O Lord. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 14, uh, we commanded, do not neglect your gift. In Proverbs 1 verse 7, as a description of a fool as one who despises instruction and wisdom. And amongst people God uses in the Bible, some of the well-known figures mentioned um, are the scholar Paul, who wrote a lot of the letters in the New Testament, um, artisans like uh, Huram Abbey in 2 Chronicles 2, and he was an expert in working precious metals and commissioned to decorate Solomon's temple. There was Solomon himself, a king of Israel, who was famed for his wisdom and learning and who wrote three books of the Bible. Daniel is described in the first chapter of Daniel as a young man showing aptitude for every kind of learning. And then Joseph, who learned Egyptian culture, um, sold into slavery um, in Egypt from, from Israel, learned Egyptian culture and was a very skilled manager and administrator. But really importantly, educational status is not a definer of our engagement with God. There are no glass ceilings in God's kingdom because of how qualified we are, as it sometimes feels that there are in our society and economy. There are no minimum essential criteria required in our application to follow Jesus. God used those who would have been considered uneducated just as well as the clever ones. It was Amos, the shepherd, another book in the Old Testament, prophet. Peter, the fisherman, one of Jesus' key disciples. And he was even described in Acts as uneducated and untrained. Gideon, the youngest, least important son of a farmer who went on to become an important leader of Israel in the Old Testament. And one of the reasons Christians have worked so hard to translate the Bible into local vernacular languages is that this faith that there are no limits to knowing Jesus. Where before it was only those who were educated enough to know Latin, or maybe in modern day, to learn English that could read God's word. God's word and offerance of, for salvation is for anyone and everyone. You don't need a degree in theology. You don't need a degree in anything. You don't even need a GCSE to know God. You see, what God has described in the Bible as valuing most is not knowledge, but wisdom. So Paul, again, and he was a very learned man, he writes in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. And again, writing in uh, 2 Timothy 3 verse 7, he encourages Timothy to be careful of people who are always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul knew that education can actually be a trap. Knowledge without wisdom or understanding is just a load of facts. It can even make us too proud to engage with God's wisdom. Who can teach us anything, right? Even wise Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 Verse 13 writes, I applied my mind to study, to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens, which basically means everything in the physical world that he could see. All is meaningless, was his conclusion. So how can education avoid becoming a meaningless bunch of information, knowledge divorced from understanding? Remember the concept of education that includes our response to what we learn. And all information we receive gets slotted into our existing view of things and builds up what's called our world view, which is the lens through which we understand the world. It's why fake news can amplify so quickly in social media echo chambers. We tend to fit information into our preconceived understanding rather than evaluate it at face value. It's a natural response. We all do it. And I think part of the wisdom that the Bible talks about and values is referring to the worldview that we fit our knowledge and learning into. How do we interpret knowledge? What does it all mean? The Bible actually gives us a very coherent worldview. 
that many Christian schools, including here in Liverpool, seek to base their education around. <clears throat> if you like, it's, it's the Bible's view of reality, and it describes four main truths. One, God created all things, and he created them good. Number two, creation has been spoiled by humanity's self-centeredness and rebellion, what the Bible calls sin. Number three, Jesus died and rose from death, a perfect man, and yet God, to cancel out the effect of that spoiling. And finally, number four, one day in the fullness of time, God's creation will be restored to its initial perfection and goodness. And how we live can contribute to that eventual restoration. We each have a part to play for good or bad towards that restoration. The reason this makes sense as a worldview for education is that it not only illuminates why there is tension between what was fundamentally good, what seems fundamentally good, but seems to have become messed up, it also gives us a very clear purpose and hope for our learning and understanding to participate in restoring that innate goodness. It knits our personal development into a much bigger picture, into a much bigger story. I wonder what alternative worldviews you've encountered in your school, or perhaps in your children's school. It's worth thinking about. Ultimately, God holds us as parents accountable for our children's education. And if you have children, what lens do you think they are developing? I think from my school, the worldview I picked up mostly was probably get good grades, get a good job, be influential. That's success. And that's meaning. Which, yeah, you can't really argue with, but it's a little bit hollow. Perhaps another version is get knowledge so you can be self-sufficient and not dependent on anyone. That way leads to happiness, self-sufficiency. Or even it's all about you, your self-determination. You have the opportunity to do, to be whatever you like. That's certainly the tone of a good chunk of advertising and, well, and, yeah, film and all media, really. It's not hard to imagine, as many commentators have, that our education system is actually more concerned with making our children economically productive in society than actually training them in wisdom. Training people up for jobs rather than for life. Worldview is really important and education has a big part to play. Are we training children in selfishness or service? In self-sufficiency or in interdependence and community? In knowledge or in wisdom? So to finish, what kinds of education are described in the Bible? And what's Jesus's example? Now, I'm not an educationalist. I've never studied educational theory. I'm not necessarily saying this is what an education system should look like. I'd leave that to much cleverer people. But I do pay attention to God's word as a source of wisdom. In the Psalms, it encourages us to meditate on God's ways, which I take as meaning chewing over God's word and getting all the meaning out of it. Some examples are Psalm 119, verse 97, which says, How I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. Proverbs uses an analogy to teach concepts. It teaches kind of deeper meaning through a picture, if you like. So a couple of gems of those. Proverbs 25, verse 14. Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. Another one, Proverbs 26, verse 17. Like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is someone who rushes into a quarrel, not their own. Other types of education, we've already mentioned Paul, who was trained by a famous rabbi, Gamaliel. And his teaching would have included learning scriptures by heart through repetition, learning interpretation of law from past case study and building on other rabbis' rulings, much like a lawyer would today. 
but also the use of analogy and parable to teach truth. Jesus was also a rabbi, which literally means teacher, but not formally trained as one. And he used parables from everyday life to teach about God's kingdom. He used everyday situations to be as accessible as possible to normal people. He wanted his listeners to think more deeply than just a trade-off of question and answer. A rich young ruler wanted to know what the most important commandment was, for example, and Jesus told him a story about the Good Samaritan. Someone else wanted a description of the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus told stories about the lost sheep, the lost coin, yeast in dough. He told stories about the sowing of grain and a rebellious son leaving home in scandal. And Jesus is described in the Bible as someone that people listen to for hours, sometimes days. Jesus was also an excellent coach. For his followers, his approach was completely immersive. He basically shared three years of his life with his closest disciples. They ate together, they travelled together, they ministered together. His closest followers learned by watching, discussing, imitating. Jesus put them in situations where they needed to take initiative where they needed to practice leadership. And then they'd go away together and to debrief. And all the time they were developing skills, growing in insight, and of course, hearing his teaching and witnessing the miracles. His primary call to them, as his trainees, if you like, and the same as to us, is follow me. After three years of this education, these followers, who were a mix of educated, uneducated, started and sustained a movement that now counts around two billion people amongst its members. And this became a movement that has survived lots of attempts to squash and exterminate it by various successive power structures. So initially, the Jewish religious elite tried to stamp out the church. Then it was the Roman Empire. And then with the rise of Islam across the Middle East and North Africa, Christianity survived the power struggles between the Pope and the reformers who wanted to translate the Bible. And finally, it survived Nazism and communism and continues to grow even under persecution today, particularly in Islamic countries. I think you could say Jesus was an effective teacher. So in summary, the message of the Bible has inspired the establishment of education through history has inspired people to reach out and develop others, often through teaching and training. Developing our gifts and our knowledge and our understanding is encouraged by the Bible, but the level of our education, our qualifications, is no barrier to knowing God. God values wisdom and understanding above knowledge. And the Bible gives us a framework of perspective in which education makes sense, a worldview for wisdom. And finally, Jesus taught by coaching and by story. And his call to each one of us still is follow me. He's an excellent teacher. One of my favourite sayings is that that he spoke is recorded in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 where he says, take my yoke upon you, as in the the bit of wood that you'd put across two cattle ploughing, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So, thank you, uh, Will, for that. That was uh, Will Sopworth on What the Bible Say About Education. We are going to get into Will's talk a little bit more uh, in just a few minutes. So if you've got any questions, thoughts or ideas, do post them in the comments. We would love to hear them from you. We have questions already, uh, and I know Phil and Will can hear me. Things like, uh, how can we help our children with our studies? Uh, what should I do if my child is struggling in school? We're going to get into all of that. So uh, that's all coming up. But before we do, we're just going to take a few moments to pray for Ukraine, like we have been doing every week since uh, it all kicked off. Uh, The prayer comes up on the screen. You can uh, pray along with us, read the words out loud or say them uh, inside your head if you prefer, if it's depending on the environment where you're at and what you're comfortable with. But do join in with the prayer after the prayer. 
We're going to have a brief time of worship again. All the words, lyrics will come up on the screen. If it's safe to do so, uh, then please join in with that. Just think about the words. It's a song called Oh God Be Our Guide. And we definitely need God's guidance right now in all of this. So uh, we're going to put that on. I'm just looking for it. There it is on the screen. Uh, so we're going to do the prayer. We're going to time of worship. And then I'm going to be back with both Phil and Will uh, to talk about this whole idea of what does the Bible say about education. Here's the prayer. Father God, King of all nations, we cry out to you now for the people of Ukraine. We ask you to rescue those who are vulnerable from the hands of their enemies, that they may live life without fear before you all of their days. Lord, have mercy. Lord of Lords and Prince of Peace, our politicians are predicting the biggest war in Europe since 1945. And we simply cry out to you urgently to write another story in our time. Thwart the dark machinations of evil men. Give wisdom beyond human wisdom to peacemakers seeking an equitable and less violent way. May politicians exercise the wisdom from above, which is peaceable, gentle, willing to yield and full of mercy. Lord, have mercy. Holy Spirit, we pray for the church in Ukraine, a nation in which 70% of the population call themselves Christian. Give our many brothers and sisters in that nation courage in this crisis, that they may proclaim the good news of your kingdom, bind up broken hearts, and bring comfort to all who mourn. Lord, have mercy. You, Lord, make war cease to the end of the earth. You break bows, shatter spears, and burn shields with fire. And so we ask you now to save the lives of many people in Ukraine. Make a peace that is strong and not weak. De-escalate this crisis. We hear of wars and rumors of wars, but you, Lord, are our rock, our fortress, and our deliverer. Our hope is in you. And so we address the nations now. In the name of Jesus, we say, Be still and know God. He is exalted among the nations. He shall be exalted in the earth. Lord, have mercy. the worship ended there uh why it froze but um uh, sorry about that i genuinely have no i, I can't tell you why that is um short of the liverpool game has ended. I, I don't know say again not even matt can tell you <clears throat> no. no sorry about that well we'll just jump onto conversation street a little bit earlier and in front of me i have two very fine looking young gentlemen uh both will and phil uh how how, how you doing will it's good to see you yeah, I'm great. Great. Nice to be here again. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, yeah, it's always good to have you. Now, gentlemen, just do me a favour. Scoot slightly towards your right so you're a bit more central on... There we go. There we go. That's lovely. <laughs> it's all about framing, apparently, when it's online. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> welcome. Uh, well, it's great to have you. Now, I have two uh, men who have been involved in education for a wee while uh, in front of me. Well, how long have you been involved in education, bud? Uh, be eight years, I think, in a governing role. Uh, eighteen years in a parental role. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, eight and years. A few more years as a, as a student, right? 
Yeah, a few more years as a student. And uh, I, <laughs> I like what Phil said earlier. How many years have you been teaching, Phil? Just 20, was it, you said? 25. 25. But you, you, you're, you're always learning, aren't you? That's one of the things that Will may mentioned in his talk as well. The day you stop learning, you really need to start again. Because as well, whilst we remain teachable as human beings, anything is possible, whether that's in your marriage, in your job, your career, mm. the way you're dealing with your children, or any other relationship, if you're prepared to change or learn, then you've always got a chance of getting better and improving. Uh, there's a little tip. That's probably biblical. Thank you very much. I don't know where it is in the Bible, <laughs> but I could probably find it if I really looked hard enough. Brilliant. So I guess my let's start right at the start of your talk. Well, you you mentioned a, a quote from Nelson Mandela about how education can change the world. And then you talked about how uh, um, uh, missionaries and education were kind of synonymous with each other, you know, and, and why why is education so powerful, do you think? Oh, it's a good question. I, mean, I think uh, I think the kind of the, that historical context that I was talking about, there was this realization that there are there are the poor there are the exploited there are those without and education actually is 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 a is a route out of that so that kind of whole emphasis on there is injustice here and we are made in god's image and everyone is made in god's image everyone deserves a chance there and education actually is the way out of that so there's that kind of historical if you're being exploited it's probably because you can't read the contract that you've just been asked to sign or, you know, something like that. Um, and, they're, they're, you know, humanity is full of these kind of levels, isn't it, of, of yeah. injustice. You're, hum, humanity will find some way to put someone else down to exalt themselves. And I think the reason education is so powerful is because, theoretically, it's something that everyone can engage with, whatever kind of level of awareness, because we are all natural learners. And so there's an, an opportunity to learn about the wider world, which actually just levels that, that playing field. And of course, you know, the, the rich and the privileged have always found a way to stay ahead um, through the history of education, which is fascinating. But I think, yeah, it, fundamentally it's that. It, it, it's allowing people the same kind of opportunities um, as each other and lessening that kind of gulf of privilege, if you like. Phil, do you still see that in the state school system? That there's yeah, a... yeah, that's really interesting because when I think of uh, um, uh, to not go off the point too much, but the church is responsible to some extent for something called the patriarchy, which is the. I mean, here we are, three men, three men talking. <laughs> um, yeah. It's the, the 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 dominance of of males throughout time. But if you look at the Bible, you think who who did will mention the the widow. So uh, a female in that culture with no male, no, no husband, which would put you really low down the pecking order. So we, need, we must look out for people who are that marginalized and the orphan. So the child with no mother and no father. So mm. once again, somebody incredibly marginalized with very little social power, social capital. And the chances of the widow and the orphan um, having any influence on anyone else or even on their own life to better it would have been minimal and i think it's really interesting that the bible again talks time and time again of those most marginalized people in society and i think we have to make a distinction between how the church in its broadest sense behaves occasionally which is terrible and woeful but actually what the bible says which is hey most marginalized people you're in the middle of this and you're the ones that or you're part of the, the people that i want my word you know god's word to be to be heard by and to be acted upon. Um, so on behalf, I'm, I can't be, I can't um, apologise for the church forever. But I, but I'm going to sort of say it now that the, the the if the church has hurt you, it's not God and Jesus and the Bible. It's mm. human beings taking something and abusing it, and that I'm afraid happens in any society or happens to any structure that that people see as a as a vehicle for power. What was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered whether you saw. I mean, it was very good what you said, Phil. I remember it from me. But it was it was bringing it back to what Will said was more like um, education. Is you, you see the lack of it uh, in the marginalised, right? Yeah. And is it a case of in the state school system? I mean, we live in the UK, right? In theory, everybody is uh, should have equal education opportunities. I don't know if they do. You're a teacher in that system, do they? I, or... I think knowing a little bit about education around the world, if you happen to be born in the United Kingdom throughout the history of time and place, you've got a pretty good deal 
you might see that your deal is not as good as the next person's within the United Kingdom, but of the 7 billion people on the planet, mm. most of them, from an education point of view, would see um, Britain, Europe, the Western world as being a chance where there is education that is offered to you. You might not necessarily take it. It might not be as good in one school as in another, but at the age of it, in the UK anyway, if you're four years of age, you're obliged to go to school. Your parents are obliged to send you and there will be a place for you. And that schooling really doesn't end till you're 16, 18 years of age. And if you look to the history of mankind, that's a mankind, people kind, that's a pretty good deal. Um, I do think, and I know we're not here to make political points, and I think <clears throat> the education system in the UK is generally pretty good. Most people end up literate and most people end up numerate. Um, however, you can see a situation where people from a particularly privileged type of school end up dominating um, very influential roles. And mm. there was an irony for a brief period of time where the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Mayor of London and the Prime Minister of the country all went to exactly the same school. Mm. And I think in that school, they were all in the same kind of house or group. If, if, it, oh, wow. if you understand Harry Potter, they're all in houses, yeah. aren't they? Most schools, they're there. And you do go, for an egalitarian society where we believe in, is your merit and your ability and your skill and your hard work and your diligence going to get you somewhere? It seems fairly unlikely that one set of, one school is going to provide the three of the most powerful positions in the land. I'm not saying those people shouldn't have been in those positions. I'm just saying, Statistically, that does strike me as being unlikely. Mm, yeah. um, however, there's, there's really interesting work, which I mean, I'm harking back to public health days, and I, I couldn't quote it for you, I'm afraid, but where actually um, every child, where, no matter where they are born, so no matter what postcode they're from, um, up to about the age of two, I think, most children have a similar kind of level of ability in terms of their kind of learning, their intellect, if you like. And, yeah. and actually, for many, it's when they then hit the school that might be in their postcode that you begin to get this kind of separation. And that's not all because of the schools. It's not all because of um, resource in the schools. Partly it's because of um, the kind of situation children are living in and their ability, you know, whether they're read, by, read to you by their parents, for example, in the evening, yeah. that kind of thing, um, whether their parents are around even. But, but it's astonishing, actually, that early on in life, every child has the same potential for mm. learning ability but actually it's our kind of culture and the way we organize things and geography frankly um, in the uk that begins to kind of separate those two lines until by the by secondary you've got this kind of gulf of of, of ability ability but it's not really ability it's just kind of opportunity and progress but mm. i think also the the kind of more marginalized ones are those that don't necessarily engage with education as we have structured it and decided that that that, it, that should be the way and those that don't get on with that um, that don't get on with the kind of intellectual side it, those are those in in a sense are the mar marginalized and they're kind of mm. thinking much more broadly about how we do education is a massive topic and you know really yeah. hard for any government to, to get right but understanding how each child and you'll know much more about this but understanding what they engage with and, and what's really going to enable them to fulfill their potential, because it might not be physics, um, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't physics for me. <laughs> I did physics, which is why I'm saying Josh is also doing physics. Anyway, uh, I digress. I, I, I do find this whole um, thing around education fascinating, you know, and, 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 and thinking about it from a Christian uh, worldview. Well, you talked about worldviews in your talk. Um, just, just, for those that maybe have just joined in or maybe didn't fully understand what you're saying, just explain what you mean by worldview. So worldview really is, I mean, the best analogy is it's a lens. You know, if you, if you had a, a camera or some binoculars or something and you put it, a blue lens in front, everything looks blue. Mm. Or if you put a red one, everything looks red. You know, it, it changes the way that you look at something. And worldview really is that. And it's very complicated. And, and we kind of build up worldview from the moment we're born, more or less. We, we, we take cues from nature. We, the things we learn, the, the role models we have, it all kind of affects our worldview. And it's really how we make sense of the world. So when we learn a, a fact, we'll, we'll tend to slot it into how we understand. So, mm. um, so yeah, here I'm, I'm kind of looking outside. Um, there's people playing cricket on the grass over there. I think 
summer and I think, oh, people play cricket because, you know, opposite mm-hmm. my house, there are people playing cricket. You, you kind of, you, that's your assumption. And of course, as you go through life, those assumptions begin to be challenged. But there's a sense where we, we try to take new information and slot it into what we already know rather than kind of dismissing everything and starting again and going, yeah. oh, well, some people don't play cricket in the summer. Um, so they play, play in the winter. I mean, it's a stupid excuse, uh, it's a stupid example. But that really is worldview. It is, it's, the, it's that lens that we build up of uh, how we make the world make sense, basically. Mm. And it's, it's something we take for granted. If someone has asked you, what's your worldview? They go, what? And you notice it when you visit another culture mm. and you begin to talk mm. to someone yeah. from another culture because there's a whole load of assumptions that they have about the way people behave that you don't have. And, and again, they're unaware of most of it. But it is something to be very, very aware of because education, obviously, and, and the, the system of education you're in actually has a massive impact on the, the view of the world that you build up. I, that's really interesting if I can ju- jump in there because there's something called the PISA studies which rank where schools and education systems come uh, in, in comparison to one another. And it seems to be a fairly Western obsession with having a league table for everything. <laughs> and I believe Estonia is at the top. And so as a teacher, we get told, oh, Estonia are doing better. You need to be more like Estonia. And you go, well, then we need to adopt Estonian policies. Yeah. And here's one that's a bit of a shock to English people watching this. Most of the world in Europe, well, and Europe particularly, they don't start teaching children formally in school till they're six. Six. In England, there's a sort of, you can get a competitive parenting scenario where my child's already reading and they're four. Or yeah, yeah. school starts at four and you go, you know what, the best education systems in Europe and in the world, nobody <clears> does that till they're six or seven. You look at Scandinavia, for example, where there's far more exploring and playing. And to some extent, my argument against the English education system is we've decided that you need to be crammed full of facts which need to be tested regularly, even if the information is of no use whatsoever. And I'm looking at you, frontal adverbs. I've got, I can speak German, French, Dutch, and a few other languages, and I still couldn't do my child's primary school homework. And I'm going, how do you make a situation where I've got, I'm, I'm not as clever as Will, not many people are, but, I couldn't do my kids' primary school at homework, and I think, and I can't even. Worse than that, I can't even see the point of doing it. <laughs> and yet these are quite, and and, and 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 you know, and the teachers aren't. It wasn't the teachers had that who brought. Then somehow we all colluded to bring this in together. Mm. And if you are a parent and you're worried about your child's education, that's great. It's great that you're worried because it shows you're concerned. Um, don't necessarily worry about your child meeting the educational milestones that the United Kingdom has brought in, which says by the age of 11, you have to have done that. At 16, you do your GCSEs. At 18, you have to have done A-levels. It's perfectly possible to revisit education as you get older and have another look at what you you didn't know or what you did know. Many people that I know, and I'm one of them, have changed career paths as they've got older. Um, So I was a teach, I was an export salesman for quite a long time. I don't know why it didn't suit. It was it's a very good example. It didn't suit me at all. And then I became a youth worker. And then I became a teacher. Then I became a foster carer. And now I work in promoting fostering. And it comes back to what I was saying at the beginning, which is if you can remain teachable, um, it's amazing what new things you can pick up as you go along. Um, and I think as parents, we can become competitive with our children. Mm. We go, oh, they're not doing as well as that child or this child. That school's better than this school. They've got into that school. My work as a parent is done. It isn't ever done. It is never done. Do not let that. That's a really interesting point you say there, Phil, because, and sorry, by the way, that my camera keeps going off. I don't know why that is. Um, It's probably not. It's it's this worldview, Will. This worldview's gone gone a bit pear-shaped. I guess uh, an interesting thing you say there, Phil, because one of the questions is what can I do or what should I do as a, I'm going to put the word Christian parent. I suppose any parent needs to think about it, but as a Christian specifically, my kids are in school. We, I mean, this is another commonality. We're all men here, but we all have kids in school. What should we do from a Christian point of view, do you think to help our kids in school? Uh, I've got two tips. One is always, hmm, I'm not going to say always, if you can, eat at a table. As a family, eat at a table. Uh, This is completely unscientific. Sorry, Will. But my experience of children that I teach is the ones that have sat at a table, particularly with a mum, dad, or intergenerational, or 
you know, grandparents, adults, cousins, whoever it is, friends from a different background. So, for example, the church that we all go to has people from, I don't know, we all like, what are we, male, stale and pale, aren't we? We're all white <laughs> old men. Sorry about that. But, but it's having people from a variety of backgrounds in your family yeah. household and you sit at a table and you eat and you chat and you just be. You'll learn an awful lot about character from that scenario. So if you want a tip from a, a man, I'm nearly 50, I'm nearly 52. I've got two birth kids, an adopted kid, and a variety of foster ones. And if I had one tip, it would be eat at a table. And the second tip is, if your children are still young, but you can do it when they're older as well, is, uh, and this is statistically proven, reading to children mm. is the most, um, I don't know if it's causation or correlation. I'm looking at Will like he knows the answer to everything. <laughs> uh, when research suggests that parents that read to their kids, those kids do better in education, uh, and in fact, in numerous other life scenarios than, than children who aren't. And I guess it would suggest a parent or an adult figure who wants to spend time with their child. Very good. And, and, and those two examples, actually, relationship is kind of yeah. key in both of those. And, mm. you know, as Phil said, we have this ridiculous kind of hierarchy of league tables for everything. Um, and the the choice between a school where your child is in community learning to be in community learning service within a community um as opposed to being in a kind of top flight school getting a's at everything there's just no contest between those yeah. and, and um i mean I, i've said about worldview and tour i think that's very very important as well um but but it's yeah the, the relationships not only at home, but within school, I think are, are actually massively important as well. Mm. Um, and you get you get all sorts of scenarios where um, where you know potential of a child growing in terms of their learning, in terms of their wisdom, in terms of their understanding may come well after school. Yeah. It may come much later in life, doing something completely different. It's kind of school is something they survived almost. You, you hear a lot of those kind of stories. Um, but but if in that process that they're, they're learning how to relate. How to how to be part of community, whether at home or school, uh, and learning those. I mean, what we call them kind of softer skills, don't we? But mm. actually, those are, those are massively important. And I think the schools that we've chosen and actually changed for our children on the way, relationship was a key part of it, um, and seeing our kids slot into a a community that's kind of not just their own age group, mm. um, although that's the way schools generally are structured for kind of for all sorts of reasons. Um, but actually having the opportunity to kind of relate more widely, as you said, to kind of with, with people who are different, actually yeah. relating across age groups is, is, is also massively yeah. beneficial for kids. Mm. Um, not everyone has that opportunity, but, but I think it's, we can get hung up on the grades, we, on, on the parents' evening, try harder kind of thing. Um, but actually there's, there, there's other things that if you kind of think forward in life, they're going to be far more significant for our children. Uh, and well, yeah, and yeah. And that's, I think that's a really interesting point. And I, one of the questions which I know people are going to want to answer is, especially if they have young kids, and maybe just tell your stories, because I've put my kids in certain type of school. Will, you've done this, you and I have a similar sort of background on this. Phil, you are slightly different. Um, how do you choose, as a parent, or as a Christian parent, the right school for your kids? There's an assumption that you get a choice <laughs> that we talk about okay, in the United yeah, Kingdom yeah. that yeah, isn't yeah, true. true. It's not a choice necessarily because in some areas schools select and in some areas they recruit because they need to fill them fill their their allocation of children. And you'll find and you'll find that the schools vary. And you'll you'll realise that if wherever you live in the UK, we recently had the day when you got a letter from your council saying which school you got into. And some people would be delighted and go, My kid got in, and other people will be bitterly disappointed and go, Oh my world. My world, my word that my child's life has ended because at the mm. age of four, they not got into this school. My advice would always be you trust your parenting because parenting creates character and character is more important than school. Mm. Um, although school is, is very important. Um, we also have all sorts of uh, shenanigans in the United Kingdom where your postcode can determine which school you go to and your postcode can be determined by the price of houses. So whilst you might, uh, you know, you might be for or against private education. I'm fairly ambivalent towards it, but 
you might go, well, I have to live there to get into that school, so I've got to pay money. In mm -hmm. Liverpool, where we all are, we have another scenario which is quite absurd, in my opinion, even though I work in one and I'm a governor in another and two of my kids go to others, we've got faith schools, where, um, which are state schools, which are, so there's a Church of England or Catholic or there's a Jewish one and you have to suggest or, or show that you're of that faith or at least interested in that faith to get in. Mm -hmm. And all these things make an incredibly complicated situation and scenario. Um, and I think to choose a school, um, there are various things you think of. And I think going along and getting a gut feeling, like you were saying, is probably as good a reason as any. But I wouldn't go to the schools that you've got no chance of getting your kid into because mm. you'll just get disappointed. And you, it might be that you begin to manoeuvre. It sounds very manipulative, but you manoeuvre what you do and where you live to just to get a kid into a school. So, for example, if you have to live within a mile, more or less, of that school, then you need to move to get into that school. There's no point in applying if you're not in the catchment area and knowing the criteria. So I often, because I work in a school that's considered pretty uh, academically high achieving, it's a great school, and people ask me, how do I get the kid in? Can you give a reference? And you go, that won't make any difference. You mm. need to read the criteria and need to go on the website to read what it says to find out how you get into that school and visit it and meet people whose kids go there and ask them what they think about it. Um, also helpful if you know your child. So if you know your child is not particularly sporty, as an example, and you go around the school where you might send them and all they talk about is the brilliant football pitches, table tennis, etc. You you might go, well, this isn't for my kid. My kid prefers this type of activity. So there isn't, there really isn't one school that fits every child. You've really got to know your kid, know the schools, and then try and apply that way. As I say, for most people in most parts of the United Kingdom, you don't get much of a choice. And probably, I dare I say it, probably your kid will probably do okay. <laughs> probably. Lots of caveats there. Um, what do you I, think? I, well, I think Phil's far more knowledgeable on this than me. I mean, he works in a school. But actually, I remember some advice you gave me when we were all kind of stressing about, you know, at that kind of going into reception. And, and I, I, felt, I felt that responsibility of where our eldest was going to go to school. Um, and you said something like, um, actually, it's the kid they sit next to that has more of an impact than, mm. than everything else. And I think, again, there's, there's real truth in that in terms of the relationships are are really key for, yeah. for our, our kids growing up. I think the choices that I've made are the ability to be part of our kids' education, so not just at home. And, and there are some schools which I think do that better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there are some schools, particularly I think at secondary, that have experienced where it's like, we are the professionals, you are the parents, and yeah, we want you to come to parents' evening, but you know, leave your kids with us, they'll be fine kind of thing. And, and I don't know whether that rings true as a teacher mm -hmm. at all, but. Um, and that sense of um, let us do the teaching, you've done your bit in dropping them off each morning. Um, that actually, in my experience of, of our kids going through education, uh, is a, that's a very much poor experience. And actually, before God, I feel that responsibility for, for us to be teachers. Now, I, I could not teach our children a curriculum. I could not get them through GCSEs. Somebody would die. Um, I just don't have that skill set at all. Um, but I want to be part of what they're being taught. I want to be able to engage with their teachers and I think the move that we made from a kind of more state system in, in, into the Christian school was definitely there was a there was a, an increase of relationship immediately which has had a, a profound impact I think on on us as a family um we seem to have lost Matt altogether yeah we can just yeah I'm still okay. here I'm still here you can hear me uh so, which is you know but, it's a beautiful but, thing but it, it can be something that, yeah, causes a lot of stress. I, I kind of knew that. And, and yeah. in a sense, along with any kind of parenting decision, only time will tell. You kind of look back. I think for me, the school that I went to, I, I definitely survived school. I look back and go, yeah, there were all sorts of amazing opportunities. My dad taught at a private school, so we kind of got free private education. Like I kind of grew up on site in the school. Um, uh, by the time I was 18, I was just, I, I didn't belong there. I was so ready to leave. Um, and I kind of look back and go, yeah, th there were lots of opportunities. It was a very good school, but it's not something that I can see 
necessarily shaped my character. I can see lots of other things that actually shaped who I am far more positively than my school experience. So, yeah. so yeah, don't don't be dazzled by the yeah. by the Ofsted rating. Um, yeah, I would. I'd have no. I wouldn't take any notice at all of the Ofsted rating. I know it's outrageous, and if I'm <laughs> if somebody's listening to this, going to wait a minute. I mean, I've been Ofsted numerous times, and um, sometimes uh, I think that is completely misleading. What you have the conclusion you've reached, but just like Will said, and I appreciate some schools lend themselves more to this than others. But when our kids um, got into the local, went to the local, got into. See, it sounds like they passed an exam. We did down the road. They went to the local primary school. Um, my wife became the governor of the school or one of the governors. So that's the system in the UK. And I, I used to run the discos, disco fill. I used to do loads of PTA stuff. And we were fully involved in the school. And that's another thing I would suggest. It is harder, I think, with secondary. You're right. But get involved in your kid's school to whatever extent you can. And another thing, and I'm say I'm teacher hat on and dad hat on here, parent hat on, is that teachers are under tremendous pressure to get kids' grades. Yeah. And I will say this out loud, and I would say this in front of Ofsted. If your kid, and in England we have a system, one is the is a poor grade, probably, we'd argue, in GCSEs. Nine is the best. I have a list next to the children I'm teaching in year 11 of what grade they're meant to get. And I have to be accountable for whether they get it or not. So if a kid is meant to get a six and they get a five, somebody says to me, why did that child get a five, not a six? What did you do wrong? Almost. And as a parent, I've said to one of my kids, um, he's meant to get a six in something, and it's French. And he went, hey, uh, it'd be quite a lot of work for me to get a six. And ultimately, if he gets a five, it's not going to make an awful lot of difference. And it is, it's the tyranny of data. It's the tyranny <laughs> of data. And there's a beautiful verse that I'm going to slightly misquote in the Old Testament where King David counts up his fighting men and his, and his uh, property. And he says uh, something along the lines of, oh, no, I've put my trust in statistics and it, it yeah. not God. And numbers are fine. I can count. You know, it's great to count. Mm. One, two, three, brilliant. But ultimately... You don't get a control group with your children when they go to school. You can't mm -hmm. say, oh, they've done better in that school or that school because you, you'll never know. You do the best you can mm -hmm. and you might not have the same choices that we have where we live and with our um, postcodes and with our income that, you know, where, wherever you're watching this, it could be completely different. But uh, you have to do the best you can with, with what's available to you. And one other little tip I would suggest is, so my son just turned 18 and on his 18th birthday, I gave him a big wad of letters that I have written to him since his birth. So every now and again, I write a letter. I did it from a daughter when she was 18. She's 20 now. And they just say things like, you know, uh, we love you, you know, from me and your mom. You know, this is some funny things that have happened recently. You know, you did this in primary school and you've done that. And we're so, oh, we love wow. you so much. Yeah. And, it, and they end with something along the lines of, um, we're doing the best we can with the resources <laughs> and knowledge that we have. We yeah. love you because I am convinced that it's an Oscar Wilde quote, isn't it? You know, you 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 might end up being forgiven by your children, but you know, ultimately <laughs> they'll find a reason. They will find a reason to find you annoying. I mean, sometimes my kids are unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Really? I know it's unbelievable, isn't it? No, but, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> you, you, you can you can do the best you can do the best you can, and then then and maintaining the relationship with that kid. With yeah. your child is the most important thing. Please do not fall out with your children over the difference oh. between a five and a six in their grades. And if they get, you know, we've got exam season in the UK coming up, they're under a lot of pressure. They're at pressure at school, pressure possibly at home, pressure from their peers. Um, and they might get the grades they need to move on to the next thing. They might not. Either way, it's not the end of the world. And we've only got yeah. to look at the examples that Will mentioned in the Bible of people going on with very limited, you know, Peter the fisherman, the, the shepherd was the lowest kind of yeah. socioeconomic uh, category, if you like. And these, there are numerous examples. If you've got a purpose, if you've got a Christian purpose in life, um, all things can be, can be turned around and can be, you know, you, you, can, you can have a fulfilling and fulfilled life. I um, think that's very true, Phil. I, I, would, I would just add to that as well, because, I mean, yeah, maybe Phil can't say as a teacher, but, you know, the teachers of your children are also doing the absolute best they can with the knowledge and the resource that they have. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> and also under an enormous amount of pressure, and I speak with a, with a sister struggling in, in secondary education in Scotland. Um, you know, 
I think another part of our, our kids' education, if there's a if there's if there's possibility to have some sort of relationship, and, and teachers watching this may go, no, we don't want to be talked to by lots of parents at the end of the day. I just want to go home. But you know, if there's opportunity again, it's, it's part of being being part of it to to engage with it with your kids' teachers and, and not kind of hold up the grades to them and say, look, look at this, but but actually that kind of partnership. I mean, there's that old saying, isn't it? it takes a village to raise mm. a child. And, and that is an ethos of many schools that, um, that, that they want to, that this takes a community. It's not this expert teacher that will get our kids through to the university and wage that you think they deserve or whatever. No, it, it's a much wider thing. And I think that's part of the wisdom of the Bible. You see the, uh, the relationship and the community and learning together and, and building that understanding together and that wisdom and that outlook, uh, which becomes much more important than the, the facts that you can relay at exam time. Brilliant. Gentlemen, uh, for those of you who have just joined the live stream, by the way, uh, and you can hear me, but you can't see me, this is not the voice of God. This is, this is the voice of Matt. <laughs> for whatever reason, my camera has stopped working. And so all you can do is hear me, which for some people is a beautiful thing. Um, so <laughs> I'll keep you gentlemen on screen while we close the, uh, while we close the service. So thank you so much for joining me, uh, and joining us to chat about education and what does the Bible say about education? I love the fact that the Bible, as you both have pointed out, is full of uneducated people changing the world. Uh, and education is good, but it's what you do with that education that counts. Uh, and I think, you know what, it's a beautiful thing and uh, it doesn't, Education does not disqualify you from the presence of God. Uh, and wherever you're at with your education, whatever God has given you, use it for him uh, and use it for his glory. And you never know what's going to turn out. You might end up like Will, like a doctor. You might end up like Phil, like a teacher. Or you might end up like me with no camera working. Either way, we're all happy, right? So, <laughs> so bless you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, normally at this stage of the service, we play some worship uh, to lead us out, but I'm actually just going to end the live stream because I'm not sure the worship's going to work. We have a few technical difficulties. I can't even talk now. A few technical difficulties going on. Uh, but yes. Next week, uh, we are going to be back, hopefully, with our technical uh, <laughs> problems behind us. We're actually talking about sex next week. What does the Bible say about sex? We're going to get into that juicy topic. Uh, you're going to have John and Kirsten Holden talking about it, which is going to be fantastic. So, yeah, I opted out of that conversation. <laughs> Much to my kids' uh, delight. <laughs> uh, but yes, thank you so much for joining us. Wherever you are, have a fantastic week. Anything else from you two fine-looking gentlemen? Yeah, enjoy your kids. Enjoy enjoy being with them. But yeah, they're fun. What he said. They're exciting. And do everything you can to maintain the relationship. Do not fall out with your children over silly squabbles. As far as it's down to you, stay friends with them. Man. Absolutely. And on that bombshell, we will end tonight's crowd live stream. Thank you so much for joining us. Bless you wherever you are. Uh, and uh, do uh, if you go to the website, www.crowd.church, you'll see the link up uh, besides Will's head there. Uh, you'll find out all what's going on here at Crowd. Be great to connect with you. Uh, so that's it. Thank you so much for joining us. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Bless you, everybody. Oh, Have you a too. fantastic week. Bye for now. Thank you.